NZ Aerosports, Icarus Canopies, now Gyro. That's right, we've rebranded, and Gyro is our next generation. It honours our founder, as that's the name we knew him by, but Gyro also marks the start of a new chapter. And not to be biased, but it's going to be fucking epic. Long story short, we're more us than ever. So if you're new to the sport, or even a Sky God Ninja Turtle, welcome. I think our valiant leader Lucy, Gyro's daughter, Says it best. And we still got that fuck your attitude. <laughs> Rebrand! Woo! Rebrand woo indeed, Lucy. Anyway, head over to gyro.com for more info and get amongst your legends. I was 19, broke, unemployed, and sold my girlfriend's canopy for drug money. So, I thought I'd better sell her a new one. What a sentence and what a story. This describes the humble yet outrageous beginnings of NZ Aerosports, the home of Icarus Canopies, in the words of our founder himself. From getting a paratrooper toy from his mom, watching parachutes at the DZ as a six-year-old, jumping off the wharf with a parachute made from bedsheets, doing his first jump at 16, sewing his first canopy on a borrowed machine at 19, and starting to sell parachutes out of a garage in 1986, Paul Gyro Martin had an undying love for the sky. Our company started with one man with the wildest of spirits in a true blue sky dream, a renegade. In the time that Gyro created and ran the Icarus Canopies brand until he passed away in 2017, he pushed everything he had to its limits. We miss him and we always will. Gyro is the next generation of NZ Aerosports. It honors our founder, of course, because it was the name we all knew him by, but Gyro the rebrand also marks the start of a new chapter, our next jump. Gyro is the space between sound and silence, art and science, chaos and calm. Gyro is a state of epic tranquility that transcends understanding. That moment, in the door, in free fall, mid-swoop, where nothing but the present exists. A perfect balance of euphoria and thrill. Gyro captures our passion for flying and our commitment to designing break-the-fucking-rules canopies that deliver pilots pure, wild flight. Coming straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go. All right, back in the can for another edition of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void. I've been wanting to do this particular podcast for a really long fucking time because this guy, man, so many cool stories. So tell me, who the fuck are you and what do you do? Oh, my name is Ivo Nirov and I like to jump off cliffs and climb mountains. This has been pretty my life <laughs> fucking evo nino jesus dude you are one of my greatest fucking memories in skydiving you and the group of crazies that came out and we got to meet oh fucking hell man we're, we'll get into all that in a bit <laughs> but <laughs> it's first off it's so fucking awesome to talk to you uh we were talking off the podcast and i haven't talked to you in years it's been a long time 
Yeah, it's been a decade actually, Dean, since we met last and talk, and you're my uh, FF instructor. Fucking, you know that's how. <laughs> it's so awesome, dude. So awesome. Well, and I, I want to get into how that came about and how I got lucky enough to have you as an AFS student. But I want to start way back when with when you started doing what most people would consider extreme sports. Uh, and for those that don't know, you say you like to jump off things and climb stuff. You, that's putting it mildly. Yeah, I mean, I started climbing actually in 1989 uh, I was a young boy and then there was no climbing gyms and all the dreams are related with climbing big mountains and not long after I start climbing I hear of the death of a very special person named Jean-Marc Boavin he was the first person who took off with a paraglider from Everest Wow! and pretty much uh, he was my inspiration he was one of these crazy Frenchies who base jumped off mountains he died base jumping actually in Venezuela and Angel's Falls and uh, he climbed the biggest mountains in the world, jumped off of them or flew down with a paraglider and uh, pretty much was like a instant passion. And in the beginning, because financially it was almost impossible to start skydiving in Bulgaria, mm. was uh, the communism times and only military people had access uh, really to skydiving, skydiving equipment, airplanes. Uh, I started paragliding. So okay. I started paragliding in 1991, like pretty much going to the top of mountains and sliding down the hill man so you just kind of been at it your entire life i mean to start from from uh, climbing and then straight into paragliding and stuff you just went balls out right away yeah i mean i was interested of using these gravity meters which you earn you know like uh took me like almost 30 years to get a, like a decent answer of this thing right. uh, i was from a old american climber he passed away last year fred becky He's an absolute legend, you know, Becky died 92 years old and he is the person with the most um, first ascent of virgin peaks in the world, over 5,000. He was the but, um, he was the guy known as uh, the original dirtbag out of Yosemite, yeah? Absolutely, this is the guy and I was lucky enough to spend a little bit of time with Fred Becky and one day we were talking about climbing and the endless question like what you do when you get to the top of the mountain and he told me this is the most difficult dangerous and expensive way to go to a place where you have nothing to do <laughs> uh, and just your memories but my philosophy is slightly different if i have a skis mountain bike or a paraglider i use this gravity <laughs> ir <laughs> <laughs> yeah you want to get that payback <laughs> Well, so when you started climbing, um, I, it, it, most people think climbing, okay, you go do this little route here, this little route there. Dude, you guys, you've done some insanely epic climbs. I mean, you're climbing accolades, and we didn't know when we met you guys, you said you guys climbed, but we didn't know you were like climbers. Like what drew you to hitting Yosemite and the big walls and the, the crazy stuff that you've done with climbing? You know, Yosemite has been driven me since the beginning of my climbing career. One day, a friend of mine gave me an article to read about the famous route on the down wall, which was put uh, by Warren Harding. And like now, 50, 60 years later, it was free climbed uh, actually by other people. Par partially was free climbed because like the direct line of the down wall is not completely free. But anyway, uh, and when I started reading about this thing, it was like, oh, this sounds very special because this place doesn't have snow avalanches. We're in the big mountains, like <laughs> always 
they always have like a passive danger, which is like uh, avalanches, snow, seracs and stuff like this. But Yosemite was just based in a perfect place. You can climb in shorts and climb 1000 meter cliff. And pretty much this was like the arena where if you wanted to see where you are, if you want to be deep into this sport, you had to go there and do some test pieces to just prove yourself. Hmm. And I did come to these test pieces and I realized this wall has like a hundred more routes on it and I wanted to climb everything. <laughs> then was the time when I met Eamon McNeely and usually one of these climbs on El Capitan takes people like a one, two, now a few hours for some of the routes but most of the routes take like uh, up to two three weeks of climbing to get to the top of the mountain mm. extremely difficult aid climbing and Emman had specialized into climbing like speed climbing on El Capitan and I had lots of experience from the Alps so when we got together we exchanged some uh, techniques and uh, visions and stuff like this and we start annihilating El Cap and pretty much stuff which has been done before that the fastest center being done for like a Two weeks or uh, seven days, we were doing it under 24 hours. This was our goal. Wow. Wow. Uh, we did lots of speed climbing on El Capitan. And actually, I still have nine records on El Cap. Like uh, 15 years later, they have still not been touched. You know, a lot of the easy stuff, which is low-hanging fruit people did, but some of the stuff we did with M and it's uh, still ending, actually, rest in peace for Dean Potter. Mm. Uh, uh, pretty much uh, we were just another level and nowadays like maybe people are not so into and so deep into things uh, we live in like a very fast world at the moment and everything is from today to tomorrow and like it's hard to keep one passion sure sure well people bounce around to different passions and stuff and you're talking about projects that can take uh, well, I mean, not just weeks, but years of planning to get it done. And, and that's a, a lot more patience than a lot of people have in this, you know, crazy Instagram, Facebook kind of world. Exactly. It was more of a, the preparation, you know, it's like everything you do, like especially for skydiving and base jumping. If you're not current, it's become to be extremely more dangerous. Mm. If you're over current, it's extremely more dangerous. So <laughs> right. it's always to keep uh, the balance you know it's like the universe like has to have a balance sure now when when uh, you guys were climbing in Yosemite your group of climbers had a, a nickname uh, was it the stone monkeys exactly the stone monkeys I made a website named the stone monkeys <laughs> and that's uh, how we created it the other Yosemite climbers who were the generation before us they called themselves rock monkeys and Stone Monkeys was kind of a pretty intriguing because friend of ours, Dean Feidelman, was making the Stone Nudes. And the Stone Nudes is like a, you know, it's a calendar and now it's like a sort of era sure. of art uh, shot in Yosemite. And I decided, okay, Rock Monkeys was taking on the internet and I made the Stone Monkeys. And they we start calling ourselves the Stone Monkeys. That's and it was a special group of people from around the world which share the same passion. Well, you know, it's it's crazy because... Again, when you guys came out and when we met you, and we'll talk about that in a minute, um, you, you, the group of guys that you came out with, you said we're climbers and we climb out in Yosemite. And of course, Yosemite was close relatively to Davis, which is where you guys came out. And uh, so we thought, all right, you know, they're, they're climbers. And we didn't really think much of it. But of course, a little research went into it after the fact. And I think we were about halfway through all the courses with everybody that came out going, no, these guys aren't climbers. They're these climbers. Because by then, you probably already had some of those records up El Cap. I mean, you guys were fucking hardcore. 
Yeah, yeah, we were actually. We did have some of these records in our cup already, and we we're like a complete climbing bumps in that time. Me and Emin, hundred percent. And actually, the way how we managed to uh, get through AFF was we worked on a big uh, climbing movie, which was the biggest climbing movie project to the moment. It was like a fifteen thousand million dollar budget, and was a documentary about speed ascent of El Capitan. Wow! And we all got involved into working in the movie and the production, and we earned enough of money to be able to pay for the skydiving stuff because we've been seen being jumping in front of us and we knew what is the process and we need we knew we need like a 15,000 bucks to be able to to learn to base jump technically because sure. it is expensive you know you have to learn to skydive you have to buy equipment after that you have to do 100 skydives at least to be self safe for yourself and like actually to be even better 200 and all this cost money and time and like to have it it's like a roughly 15 grand you sure. have to have to get into base jumping properly i say uh you can get it in like a lot more shallow ways but it's not gonna be the same right right well now so this would have been the time frame when dean potter was doing the free basing mm, no actually dean did the free base like uh two and a half years later okay we were already when he did it well so i was living Actually, I lived with Dean in the same house for like a six years. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, he, he spent a lot of time bouncing in between Yosemite and then going out and jumping in Lodi and stuff. And, and uh, I know you guys ran the same circles, and obviously Yosemite is as small a community as some of the drop zones. Um, absolutely, I was, but it's hard to have a community like in the drop zone because it's like a, pretty much you have only one um, – point where you can meet climber this is a camp for or the local cafeteria everything is controlled by police and rangers and stuff like this and it's not so easy right so now you guys were your your active climbers you've decided you want to come out and learn to skydive specifically because you want to learn how to base jump you're working on this film to save money and all of this stuff who was the group that originally came out i know it was you it was Ammon, it was nick martinez uh and there was somebody else wasn't there Actually, was another guy named Yarla. He was a photographer from Norway. Another guy, uh, Aaron, um, who is a climber, and he still works like a mountain guide in Yosemite. And one more guy, I totally spaced his name out. Uh, he's from Sacramento area. And pretty much, yeah, all of us worked on the movie. I mean, I was the outdoor producer, so I hired all my friends to help me to do what we had to do. <laughs> and... Uh, Pretty much, I was the guy who caught all these drop zones. You know, I caught all the drop zones in California. Hey, we're six guys from Yosemite. We want to come to skydive yep. <laughs> to learn to skydive. So it was quite interesting. And finally, we got suggested to go to Davis uh, just because we're going to get a little more proper education. Sure. Uh, compared places and uh that's how we ended with you guys well and i remember too that one of the big things was you guys haven't had a limited amount of time you only had like a week uh, to get everything done if i remember correctly so it was like all hands on deck man we got to be here and jumping yeah we did because uh, part of our job is like a partially sponsored athletes we were sponsored athletes with them and we we're getting equipment from some places a little bit of money from here and there we had to go to the trade show in south lake city and it was like a job we had to do so that's why we didn't have much time <laughs> it was i'll never forget it because and every every drop zone every instructor has had a student that's come out and said something along the lines of i just want to learn how to base jump and i know i got to do this first but you guys came out 
And all of you were like, yeah, we don't really want to skydive. We just don't want to die when we jump off the mountains that we climb. <laughs> and all of us are like, oh, fuck. Here we go. <laughs> this year, actually, when I showed up, this was exactly after the movie. Around the movie, I've been on the top of El Cap 42 times. Jesus. Uh, this was in a period of 51 days. Uh, so every other day we were going to the top of El Cap, uh, rigging ropes for camera people, going up, going down, going up, going down. And when you sit in the best drop zone in the world, <laughs> where you have 1,000 meters of <laughs> pure right. flying, All right. it's kind of a you don't learn to base jump. Oh, man. I mean, it was it was a really cool experience because it's the first time I, we ever had a, a dedicated group of students come out wanting to get as many jumps in as they possibly could and walk away with their A licenses in one week. And so we called in extra instructors. Kevin Love was out there. Uh, it was me. It was a bunch of other people coming out to make sure you guys could get through it. And fucking hell, man, it was we had so much fun doing it, although some of the jumps were definitely challenging. <laughs> we, oh, we all Challenging times. Oh, dude. dude. I've told the story more times than I can count. Um, your and my first jump together is still one of my favorite fucking memories because uh, you're such an intense guy. You're not – and I, and I try and separate it. You're not tense, clearly, to be able to do the kind of things that you do uh, with all the climbing and all the stuff that you've done since you've learned. You've got to be able to know how to relax. But you're very intense, and especially when you were learning how to skydive. And I remember I would try and tell you, I'd shake my hand out and say, okay, you need to relax. Just just relax. And you would always look back at me and go, okay, relax. <laughs> you were super tense. <laughs> One of the hardest things in life uh, to learn in general, you know, we have to learn to relax. And uh, when you have uh, things you can fight with power, it's kind of a difficult uh, to chill uh, your body, especially. <laughs> Because, uh, you know, that's the coolest part of skydiving in general is like you have to feel the flow. You don't have to force the flow. Yeah, man. Um, and, yeah, it's like, a, yeah, I had a like really difficult time uh, in my first seven jump skydiving. Uh, it was intense. Well, like, you know, I'll tell long. you what, I was lucky enough to jump with both you and uh, Nick Martinez on a, a couple of them. In fact, uh, I took Nick on his first as well, and uh, he threw the reserve side instructor and then floated, got away from me as well on the first one. Uh, and we never did manage to get back to him because he was so light and floated so big while he was spinning, but he pulled. Um, and you did the same thing. You had a couple of rough jumps, but you were pulling every time as well. And I'll never forget telling Nick, dude, I'll jump with you seven days a week, every single day. Cause you did the one thing I need you to do. You open your fucking parachute. We can fix everything else. <laughs> See, Perry lost me on my fourth jump. This was part of one of the safety days. Yeah. Uh, only with Perry, we were two of us, and I ended in flat spin, and I was looking at my Audi going super fast. Whoa, whoa 5,000 feet, and I pitched. I had like a 20-line twist <laughs> to the top of the canopy, but oh, I landed down, and I remember <laughs> it was interesting. You know, whatever, that's happened. Yeah, man, it had to be. Now, let me ask you, so what's the difference for you in the mentality behind when you were learning how to skydive and the mentality when you're on a face like El Cap? Because it's got to be completely different. For me, when I've climbed, climbing to me is a much more um, – intimidating experience than skydiving but i would imagine the reverse was the same was the truth for you when you started 
actually the first two jumps uh to be honest with you i don't remember what happened like it was like wow cry this was the end and it's like uh you know i could not uh go make my mind to think so fast to understand what skydiving is now when i jump out of airplane i see so many things and it's like goes forever sure. but in the old days was split moment it was insane russia well, now, is that the big difference for you, uh, or was it the big difference? Is climbing uh, seems to come at a really slow, focused pace, and skydiving was just a holy shit experience? Uh, yeah, and I started climbing very young, so I had a, a fear of heights when I started climbing. But this is like everything else, like skydiving, you get used to it when you get familiar with the stuff you are on. Sure. Um, so... I think it's like we are the most adaptable organisms on this planet is the Homo sapiens. And like uh, with time when we realize uh, what's going on, you know, like the, we're talking about extreme sports and it's very simple. Extreme sports are like a business. It's like calculating a risk and risk management. Sure. And more factors you have like working for yourself, uh, then uh, more confident and safe you feel. And as Dean always say, just if you want to do like a super badass shit, you have to be super current. You have to be on it. And, you know, it's like, a, it, 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 it's obvious. I mean, if skydiving, uh, you cannot pass the A license with seven jumps, you can pass it after 20 jumps if you're keen of doing it. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. Well, it, it just, uh, I, I always found it was such a different mentality between climbing and skydiving. And I assume that your, um, your extensive climbing by then gave you a mental strength that a lot of people don't have going into skydiving. I mean, you must have learned how to handle fear so young if you're, if you're climbing the things that you're doing. I mean, fear kind of must be an old friend to you. Um, yeah, you know, like I always say what Yoda says, fear is the path of the dark side. And for myself, uh, it's important to don't have a fear, uh, but to have the understanding of the things which stressed me out. Mm. So when you understand the situation, like, for example, trying to execute a skydive, if you're familiar with the equipment, there is no reason to don't do it, right? Right. Um, and uh, and you've done it, you know how to fly your body, you know how to deploy a parachute. So uh, why there should be a fear into this uh, situation? You know, it's like even I, yesterday I went and I opened a new base jump. <laughs> and it's kind of hard to see what is below you, you know. Like I never been in this place. I was alone, uh, locked. I use my knowledge, you know, I measure, okay, I have like enough of altitude to do what I'm going to do. This looks clean, like the landings, there are a few options. I made my measurements and there was zero fear. It was just the pleasure of executing something super rad. That's so awesome. That's so awesome. Now, what about climbing? Because you've clearly, with as many routes as you've been up and as many walls as you put up, you must have had some pretty sketchy situations in your past. I mean, you must have had some stuff that's really gotten you rattled. Yes, there have been situations like this, like on a multiple occasions. <laughs> uh, but when you're in this situation, you have to, you have to, you have to move. It's like a skydiving. I mean, like you're driving a car with 200 kilometers an hour and you have to make a turn, you make it, like, because you have to survive. Uh, same is climbing, you know, it's just sometimes uh, <laughs> danger, danger is like a, 
most of the time when you're into it, you don't realize the danger, you know, if it's outside danger. Mm. In Yosemite, most of the time, you calculate the risk. Uh, but when you're in a big mountain, when something can fall in your head at some point of time, uh, this is something you cannot predict, right? right? So mountain climbing is still like a very, very dangerous game. And yes, I mean, every climber have had moments of like falling off things and I nearly died a few times, like hitting the ground. Uh, but this doesn't stop you when you don't get hurt pretty bad. Uh, <laughs> simply, but I taking some bad fouls. Wow. Well, I mean, I suppose in that you, uh, uh, you've got a lot in common with the whole crew that you came out with. I mean, uh, uh, most people have probably seen, uh, um, Ammon's, uh, base jump that went slightly wrong when he tweaked his ankle a little bit. <laughs> and yeah. for, for those that haven't seen it, uh, Ammon McNeely, known as the Pirate, um, which is, again, a record-setting climber in Yosemite as well, uh, did a base jump and, and uh, had a wall strike and did some severe damage to his ankle that did not keep him from either climbing or jumping. I mean, you guys are just machines. Actually, Ammon, right now, they had to amputate his leg uh actually the the strong one right. and he still keeps base, base jumping and climbing with a uh, uh, prosthetics well didn't he, he he trashed his good leg on another base jump didn't he absolutely <laughs> i mean absolutely yeah what's a pirate without a peg leg i guess yeah, I mean, Eamon, all his life wanted to be a pirate, and now he's the real one. And yeah, Eamon is one of the live people who has probably the most uh, speed records in El Cap at the moment. Like, I think he's the number one. Wow. Uh, but he didn't have a really good uh, luck with base jumping. I mean, it's like uh, he messed up a few times the situations and uh, got hurt. Luckily, he's alive and still keeps the good spirit going. Yeah, man. Well, I'll tell you what, especially you, out of that whole crew, um, everybody kind of did exactly what you guys said you were going to do. You came out to learn how to skydive, not to skydive, but to base jump, and you guys have been fucking going at it. You especially have done some insane base jumps, but how many base jumps compared to skydives do you have now? I mean, I have a 700 skydives and 1,500 base jumps. <laughs> <laughs> oh man and that's we did our course together in 2006 didn't we yep yep i mean you've been all over the world you've jumped just about every damn thing what are some of the standout base jumps that you've done what are your, some of your favorites uh honestly my favorite jump in the world is the one we did with dean they call the ecstasy board on uh diger this is the high Iger, and Dean discovered this exit point in 2008. And this was the biggest base jump at the time. It's 2,800 meters uh, elevation from uh, exit to landing. And it's quite amazing exit point. It's something about like a four or five meters. Maybe it's like a foot and a half wide, you know, like a less than a meter, like a spire pointing above the north face of the Iger. Mm -hmm. And when you're zipped in a wingsuit, you walk like a penguin getting to the end of this thing. And the end is not the perfect flat place. You have to step kind of a <laughs> funny place. But from there, when you start flying in the old days, I mean, 2011, no, 2012, me and Dean, um, Dean flew actually uh, four minutes. And I managed like uh, three minutes, 20 seconds. And that flight uh, was like some of the longest base jumps in the world being done at that point of time. This was an amazing jump. And after that, I spent a lot of time with Alex Pauly. Actually, 
pretty much I have five years here in Europe with Alex. I got super into flying wingsuits and base jumping. Wow. So I lived in Brunei for two years. I lived in uh, Italy for two years. And after that in Chamonix for like a year or a little bit to the time when Alex died. But pretty much everything we did is like we always lived in a place where you open the front door and you jump out of the balcony. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's it's so funny looking back, too. Um, and I've got multiple students that have been lucky enough to teach along the way that have gone on to do insane things. But I mean, it's people are like, oh, wait, you know, you know, Evo? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's bizarre and amazing seeing just how far you guys fucking took it. I mean, all of you, but to be out jumping the Iger and stuff like this, did you ever think you'd be able to push it that far? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, actually the goals are a lot higher when we started to, <laughs> to skydive. You know, the plan was to go and to climb the highest mountains in the world. And if something gets uh, sketchy, then we can jump with our equipment and we don't have to uh, walk down the mountain and like a base jump. We wanted to take the skill we had from Yosemite to like a big cliffs in the Himalayas. Mm. This was our plan. And pretty much on these places, you're so dependent by weather. And the style we're using in Yosemite, very light and fast style, not to go for one month on a cliff and to try to go for two or three days. And if something happened, we can just jump from our fortalages directly back to base camp. And we had like a system. I made a special parachute system. You can like attach the whole bags to it and you can throw it and deploy it in 10 seconds. And then with remote, you can control the the baggage to get somewhere down. And this is one of the most fascinating things of like flying big, big uh, wingsuits and big mountains because with Dean, we're sitting at the top of the Iger, like 3,800 meters, like nearly 4,000 meters, freezing, almost dying. Right. And man, and like you just make this step and like five minutes, literally later, you're drinking coffee and like the fanciest coffee shop you've ever been looking at the north face of the Iger. I mean, this is so fascinating. This is like a teleportation. There is no the fucking faster way to get from the top of a mountain to a coffee shop. <laughs> That's so fucking epic. Yeah, that's a hell of a commute. Now, were you guys doing uh, uh, helicopter lifts up to the top of the Iger? No, no, no. Actually, I never done a helicopter lift to the top of the Iger. I done like a one helicopter lift to the middle of the Iger with JT Holmes years ago when we built like a ramp for like a ski base. Uh, but every jump I done from the Iger and I done over 30 jumps, I climbed it and hiked it. No shit, man. That's a, that's, that in itself is an insane accomplishment. I mean, that's not a small hill. Yeah, it's a big hill, but like, you know, when we're fit with Dean, we are able to do it like two to three times a day. It's, uh, you use the train for a little bit and then you have like a thousand meter climbing. Wow. Uh, but from you said, from El Cap, we were very, very, very fit. You know, it's like, no, I mean, Dean's record on El Cap was 42 minutes to get to the top of El Cap. Uh, my record personal was like a 53, I think, Jeez. 10 minutes lower. Stanley was doing it for something about that. This is 1,000 meters. And when you are when you have this fitness and you keep it, if you don't stop doing it, you do it. I mean, like, even now I walk like a 1,000 meters, but it doesn't take me anymore 50 minutes. Takes me like a one and a half hours. Sure. Uh, I'm talking like a steep terrain, not like uh, making thousand meters and like running uh, terrain. Sure. Now, when once you started base jumping, um, was your goal the first thing to try and go hit stuff in in Yosemite? I mean, I was living in Yosemite. I lived there for like a nearly decade, and we we're living with Dean at home, and like 
we were doing, I have over 400 jumps in the valley. Jesus Christ. Uh, <laughs> and this was on. Like, you know, I could go to the drop zone Saturday and Sunday and fly with people, fly the wingsuits, and I go back to the valley and I have the whole week and I can do like five to six jumps a week. Was and it, was we it, did it. Did it get pretty hardcore with the uh, Rangers? Did you ever have any major issues there? Yeah, we did, but we lived in Yosemite. We knew the Rangers, we knew the community. And pretty much always the rule was if no one sees us and we don't disturb anyone, it's a clean story. And it worked out. We're very clever the way we do things. Uh, there was some chasing, but uh, nothing major and nothing crazy. Well, I mean, that's good because, you know, there's the there's the horrible story of, of uh, um, the one base jump that he landed and ran away and, and uh, jumped in the Merced River and drowned. Yeah, this was Frank Gambali. He's yeah. like actually the first professional base jumper in the world, uh, you can say. It. He was a Red Bull athlete. Uh, but yeah, Frank have done it uh, multiple times and things are being pretty uptight in the valley. And he took his decision, you know. It's like uh, in the end of the day, you always can turn yourself in for 5000 bucks if it's not worth it for you jumping in the river. And he took this decision. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, and in our cases, uh, we all understood it's to be busted is possible, but the rule was we never get busted. So if you have a good plan, most of the time when you're not hurting anyone, then life is easy. You know, it's like yeah, I had to jump in the complete darkness, something people don't like doing, but I done lots of night jumps. Wow. Maybe that's... I don't have any memories from this, but you know, <laughs> dude, that's gotta be so <laughs> I... fucking intense. A, a night base jump in Yosemite yeah yeah I mean people do it and you know I have probably tens of them Jesus no Christ. no one or two but many <laughs> my man oh man do you I mean do you ever see it uh, um, becoming legalized um actually it's possible but uh, there is no understanding from the jumper side uh we all ask is uh jumpers when it's gonna get legalized let's legalize it um, and I did a lot of research and when I lived in Yosemite, there are people who are very deeply intrigued into the idea to legalize it and to make it happen again. The problem with base jumping globally is there is not a structure which to unite base jumpers and one thing to be able to negotiate with governments to change things. Mm. Uh, and this is the biggest problem in the United States. It's an old history. Carl Banish fought for it quite a bit. Uh, he managed to do it and He's the person who explained it very, very easily. He said it was prohibited because it wasn't understood. Sure. After that, it was legalized because it was feared. Sure. Okay, people are feared, people are going to die, might, might as well do it legally. And finally, it was prohibited because it was abused. Mm. And this is the time when uh, the Park Service agreed at that time uh, if you have 200 jumps at the time, uh, skydiving, this means D license. Nowadays, 500 to have D license. You can apply for a permit to jump off El Cap on Saturday morning from 6 to 8 in the morning. Okay. Hmm. And some people did it legally this way. But at some point, uh, these stories I heard, I'm not a witness of this. This is a long time ago, but I know from both sides, from jumpers and from the rangers. The people, bay jumpers, tried to drive a truck to the top of El Cap. They were jumping when they wanted. And pretty much, like, a group of people messed up for the whole world. Ugh. But it was legal, it permitted. And this is the problem of bay jumping. We're too many free spirits. Everybody has their own opinion. And 
base jumping was sort of way to express yourself without of anyone telling you how and what to do. Sure. This is maybe like the simplest way of understanding of this form of jumping. Some people had the passion to jump from stationary objects. The other ones had the passion to have the communities. But the sport is so dangerous and there's such a diverse personalities ended into this sport, particularly to express themselves because their surrounding life sucks. They, they exist there as well. Mm. Like it's, it's a quite interesting uh, scene, the base jumping, and there is another structure actually in global. And uh, in France, they have like a very good structure. Is the um, French Base Association. They have insurances, they have topos, they have informations, they share information, they make meetings. They're quite united in France. Mm. Uh, in Switzerland, they have something similar going, and in Italy, they have something similar going, but not such strong structures. But they manage to make things legal to jump and fairly regulated. And uh, the authorities are familiar with the risk of this sport and they start agreeing because they see it's partially a business as well. Sure. So in many places like Lauterbrunnen, you can buy landing cards and Arco is the same way. This is like base jumping drop zones, right? Sure. So in some places, uh, people are being working in this way, but in the United States, is on the edge of impossible if the base jumping community doesn't unite at some point of time and decide to build an organization which is ready to negotiate with the government. Because the, I spoke with rangers before, you know, we lived in Yosemite and we asked them why they don't let us. And they say, just tell us one person who will be responsible for all the other people who are doing shit around and we will shake hands and make it legal. And no one wanted to stay and to take responsibility for the rest of the people. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, it always kinda, I always looked at Yosemite specifically and, and was a little bit confused because I, I was obviously never a big climber and I'm not a base jumper either. So I'm, I'm a, a couple of steps outside of all that. But climbing itself in Yosemite is crazy dangerous. I mean, people die every year climbing um, and falling from great height sometimes. And I never understood the difference between if you got yourself killed on a base jump or, or killed because you took a whipper and your rope let go or your harness wasn't done up or something like that. Um, I, I never could separate the two. But then I remember when they did the protest years and years and years back and they made arrangements with the park ranger uh, to be able to do a jump uh, with the understanding that they were going to be allowed to jump. But when they landed, they'd be arrested. And it was their way to protest and try and make it legal. And during that protest, one of the jumpers went in. Not exactly a good way to try and show the, you know, the parks department how safe it could be. So, But in the same hand, shows this happens and this is not a problem. The problem is like the impact uh, happened in. Sure. Before I became a base jumper, I found on the top of El Capitan enormous amount of cheap sleeping bags, even GPS coordinates to the exit point. I found like pillows, uh, ski poles, backpacks. Uh, people were ready to separate with everything and jump, and they don't care what they leave behind them. Mm. Even I have a pair of goggles I found on the top of our cup I own to today because they're very special goggles for me. Clear ones, which a jumper left on the exit point. You know, I mean, like, this is not cool. And the other thing is with time, you see the places where we pack and do things like outdoors. We destroy the grass, destroy the place. So to happen legally with the park, I I understand the park completely. We have to like become to be a little bit more uh, human, hmm. not just the egomaniacs who want to jump off cliffs. Sure. And especially out. 
just to count it in their tick mark and leave all that stuff on the top. They know, okay, this jump will cost me 50 bucks. I buy a cheap tent and sleep, sleep, cheap sleeping bag. I just leave it there and I jump in the morning and I never go back. Right. You know, and when this mentality doesn't disappear, then we're always going to have a problem because uh, Yosemite is like a community place. It doesn't belong only to base jumpers, climbers. It belongs to my grandma as well. Sure. Uh, she can hike. She doesn't need to see all this shit everywhere. Uh, so we have to be a little more respectful as the jumpers and people, mountaineers, to have this culture, to don't leave traces behind us and to make the stuff we do no problem, right? Sure. So if early or late, like a group of people shows up with a good plan and it's ready to go to Senate, this can be, uh, you know, actually the chief ranger of Yosemite can single-handedly permit, permit base jumping in Yosemite. Hmm. I mean, but you know, I'll give you other example, which is very extreme is Chamonix. Chamonix is the capital of extreme sports. And pretty much this was like the sickest drop zone in the world. Hmm. Because from our house where I lived with Alex, you just take a bicycle, you roll it down the hill for like literally 40 seconds. You step in a gondola, which takes you 3,800 meters elevation, hmm. 2,800 meters above the valley. You walk 70 meters and you're on an exit point to fly a terrain as you wish, as, as you want. This is like a two and a half minute wingsuit flight all day long. This is on one side of the valley. The other side of the valley just above the house is like a 1,600 meters, very steep terrain with lines for wingsuiting forever, the Brevant. And okay, in Chamonix, everything goes, no problem. Many base jumpers died, no problem, people die in the mountains. But one day, base jumper went inside of a chalet. Oof. He didn't pitch. He went inside of the hotel. And the people from the community, including I had to vote for all that stuff as well because I'm part member of the French Base Association when I was living there, and still I am. Uh, the people say, it's okay, you do whatever you want in the mountains, but the second you stand danger other people with your activities, this is not welcome. Mm. Especially going into a hotel. Yeah. You know? I mean... And this is pretty much the end of these two jumps. They, they were restricted. And fair play, though, right? I mean, holy shit. Can you imagine? You're you're just kicking back visiting this chalet. You have no idea what's going on. And next thing you know, somebody comes piling through a window or a door or the roof. And, I mean, that's going to be, oof, that, that, that's, that's pretty fucking hardcore. It is really hardcore. So we have to understand both sides. This is my point. I'm a base jumper. I love base jumping. Like, I don't know illegal jumps, as you can call it. And it's illegal by the man's law, not by the nature law. Because if you listen to the laws of nature, like gravity is our friend, there's a huge space, you do it. But somebody decided at some point you should not do it. You know, so, but when it become to be a mass thing, when many people got involved and we start doing it over and over, we have to like cooperate with the community around, which is using the same place to, be, to live in harmony. And this is the most difficult part, actually, I think, uh, for base jumpers. In some places, they manage to get in harmony. Mm. Yeah. As I say, in Switzerland and like uh, in France as well, they were really, really responsive and open to the whole thing to the point when somebody breaks the rules very bad. And when it's a danger for another human being, then 
you should not do it here anymore. I'm sorry, you blew it. For sure. Well, and I, that's kind of the balance no matter what, though. I mean, even in just normal life, I was lucky enough last year to be able to go hike up to Everest Base Camp. And on the way up, one of the things that that constantly shocked me was the amount of trash everywhere. Now, obviously, the higher up the mountain you get, the less you see. But all the way up to base camp, there wasn't anywhere that walking for two or three minutes, you didn't see a plastic bag or a piece of garbage, which really upsets you. And you understand why people get so upset that that's going on. And you think everybody's horrible, but then you get back to Lukla um, and, or pardon me, back to Namchi. And they ask you if you'll carry bags of garbage down to Lukla to get off the mountain. And then you feel good about people because you see every single person heading down the mountain's got at least one bag of trash. So, I wish it was possible to get everybody to try and do that kind of shit, but unfortunately it's the few people that abuse that stuff that always fuck it up for everybody else, which sucks. Exactly, and this is the reason to have a community and this community to be able to punish these people. But we live in like a very crazy world. You know, the world changed after 2008 when the Facebook became to be like a more mass thing. Mm. When the tribune was open and everybody started doing things on their own and they don't care what the rest of the world does. Sure. They just go on the billboard and they say, we need that, like we're badass, you know, like and follow this thing. And it's bad because like the corporate support which comes from outside to support the activities we do is based on these likes and on this interest. Sure. So this completely changed the game, you know, like including I had to do it. I mean, it's like when you're an athlete, you have to do this. You have to promote yourself. And now I'm lucky enough to be able to share it, not to promote it because like uh, I do it for myself. Mm -hmm. I don't have to show anything to anyone. Well, and especially when you started base jumping, that was kind of just when all the social media stuff was starting to starting to take off, but it didn't really get crazy for a couple of years. Um, but I'm sure you've seen more than most how much social media affected the sports that you love, both climbing and especially base jumping. I mean, over all the years that you've been base jumping and all the places that you've been, you must have seen some pretty negative effects from social media. It was my job, actually. You know, I was a sports marketing uh, manager for five, ten Europe for like almost seven years. Wow. Uh, yeah, I did that here for Europe, and I worked with all the top mountain bikers, base jumpers. I uh, made the base jumping team for five, ten at the time. I uh, worked special in designing shoes for that, and my boss uh, from five, ten side because we sold the company to Adidas in 2012. But I kept working. We were like promoting the sport of base and supporting it, and uh, we had like all the best athletes in the world, and even some of the uh, wingsuit manufacturers to today, like Phoenix Fly, uses five ten rubber for their soles. Mm. Uh, yeah, they do. Uh, and it's quite good. So, you know, there are other companies which are matching now the quality and the performance of the stuff we're doing, but we were working on it. And my job was to work through social media, to go to all these events. And like, I was lucky enough to be in a way like an employee of the company and allowed to base jump, you know, like people are buying my base jumping gear and I was sent to base races to present the company. You know, I was maybe the only sports marketing manager who was like doing stuff with the athletes, even in climbing and jumping. That's so so it was awesome. quite interesting life. <laughs> it's so awesome. I mean, you, you really did take it to a whole new level and you, you kind of just kept going. Like I expected you'd base jump for a little while and then maybe I wouldn't see too much, but Jesus, dude, you're still at it all these years later. So you just said you just opened up a new, um, exit point in Bulgaria and I've seen actually we opened, 
over 27 exit points for the last two months. Jesus. <laughs> the game changed. <laughs> well, what was this? What was this cave I saw you jumping into? Uh, the cave is quite interesting, actually. Uh, it's a uh, how you call it? It's uh, it's a big cave here in Bulgaria. There are many of them, but this one particularly is named the Devetashka Cave, um, and it's uh, just amazing natural beauty. You know, which is there. It's been base jumped actually long ago, like uh, 2011. Uh, a British guy jumped it. Uh, it's not very high, actually. I'm not so sure where he jumped from, but the place I jumped from uh, was 42 meters. Fucking um, hell. Uh, yeah, it's actually uh, things change. You know, that's why we open so many uh, base jumps here in Bulgaria in the last like two months is because. Uh, I was a terminal base jumping, base jumper. You know, I did some like a low jumping in Moab, but nothing lower than like a 200 feet, uh, which is like a 70, 80 meters. You know, not using much like a static line techniques and uh, not uh, much of like a handheld jumping. Mm. But that's some because this is the way you start learning on the bridge and stuff. But uh, I I only flew my wingsuit, you know, like I would say like 70% of my base jumps, like this 1,500 base jumps are done with wingsuit yeah. uh, because I wanted to travel. And this was the most important thing. I've never been like a mega proximity pilot or anything. Like for me, wingsuit has always been transportation and share good time with friends and uh, worked out and challenge, you know, because it's so cool to just climb to the crazy, the top of some mountain and Instead, have to walk forever down. You just hog it and drink good coffee. But anyway, so the game changed. And uh, for some years, I pulled out from base jumping because I lost lots of my friends base jumping. I mean, it's scary to say like over 50 people died in the last 10 years doing what we do. People I know, no, no base jumpers, many, a lot more base jumpers. And I spent five years with Dean and like uh, another six with Alex Pauly. Uh, and they were like my brother, so it was like a big shock for me, you know. Um, there, that does, didn't stop me from jumping. Mm. Uh, pretty much for me, the philosophy always has been to understand what happened for somebody to die. I don't have to stop something because somebody died. Sure. You know, uh, this is his mistake, and uh, Gary Soriaibo nowadays, and the information is so much better, so if we're careful, we can minimize the risk quite a bit. Uh, and but I never got into low base jumping, you know, I'm talking lows, anything which is from like a 120 feet to like 300 feet size. Sure. And always sort of stay away. I never had like a vented parachute and the new technology and stuff like this. And at some point, a friend climber uh, decided to quit base jumping and he just loaned me his uh, rig. Leo Holding gave me his like uh, a rig and I did like a few jumps here. Then we went to Saudi Arabia for like a short climbing trip and I took the parachute with me and we climbed six Virgin Towers there this year, like uh, 2020. Jeez. And we had to ex- uh, escape from there because of the coronavirus crisis and I moved back to Bulgaria and I realized, fuck, I mean, like, I cannot base jump in the big mountains. I cannot go to Italy and Switzerland right now. But just in the front of my house, literally like 10 minutes with a bicycle, there is like an 80-meter cliff I've been looking forever. I'm going to go jump this thing. And that's how the thing with static line started. And I start jumping from there and like start seeing so many things around me which are jumpable. And uh, slowly, slowly, 
doing a lot of jumps from like a safe jumps from a bridge and like a little antenna where you can test your equipment and learn the game of static line. Sure. So it's quite interesting game. Takes the skill of jumping. You have to jump. And the second thing is you have to be very fast with controlling parachutes. Mm. Like a reflexes, which like maybe some skydivers who jump a lot have, but most of the time it's special. And when you get it going, that's awesome, man. Sure. So <laughs> right now, as we speak, I'm sitting in the front of a mountain where I jumped yesterday. And there are four more points I found, which are like a safe jumping. <laughs> this is so fucking cool, man. It really is. I mean, I love the fact that you everybody else is locked down and you're like, all right, fuck it. I just got to find some shit to jump around here until I can get back out there. That's perfect. Now, you must be dying waiting to get out back to the big stuff, though, yeah? Not really, because I'm, uh, I call it, like, a very settled in this way, man. Like, life took me to so many places, and one thing I learned is I have to, I don't have to rush. And, yeah, I'm driven to go back to the big mountains, but maybe I'm not ready and fit to go to do the things. Because Mm. when you live in the big mountains, when I'm living there, I never get out of shape because sure. I'm always in shape. I hike every day. Do I hike with a paraglider or hike with a rig or go climbing? But when you live in like a lowlands, like you get used to a lot easier life. And when you go to the big mountains, sometimes it's difficult. Yeah, man. And this is not good. And base jumping is very important when you get to exit point to be completely relaxed and to have 100% of power. Uh, just because people get super tired to the top of a cliff, they jump, they get a cramp and they hit the cliff. Sure. (laughs) Sure. For sure. So basically what I've been trying to do, uh, when I'm around home, it's like, because I never spent time at home. Like it's crazy. You become to be a gypsy when you're so driven, Sure. chasing dreams. And now I had the opportunity just to see what is around me. Which is fucking epic. I mean, that's the one thing a lot of people have said that during this, they, for the first time, realized that they'd been going so hard, they got to take a deep breath they didn't know they needed, uh, which is really cool. A lot of people have said, wow, so this is what it's like to just chill for a little while. <laughs> it's like skydiving, what you're telling me. You were trying to teach me how to chill so I can fly my bike. <laughs> Dude, I'll tell you what, uh, man. I never in a million years, I mean, the natural reaction when somebody comes out and says, I just want to learn how to do this so I can base jump and jump off mountains. As an AFF instructor, you're like, oh, fuck, this is going to be hard. And we had definite speed bumps to get over. But when you guys walked away from the course, you, Ammon, and Nick specifically all ended up doing fantastic in your course. But I still was like, all right, I'm really nervous. Those guys are going to start going and jumping off of shit. And now here we are all these years later, and you're like one of a very few number of people on the planet doing a lot of the things that you're doing. And it's so fucking cool to see. It really is. I mean, it's it's a long way from that guy that didn't know how to say relax without clenching his fists <laughs> to the shit that you're doing now. It's fucking epic. Yeah, I mean, what's good times as well, because I had super lucky, you know, from Davis, I went directly to Lodi. And I spent a lot of time with Pete Swan. He's like a master rigger. Yeah. And pretty much Dean and Pete were my base jumping mentors. And Pete has been working with parachutes since 40 years. And it was quite interesting to live in his shop literally for six months. I lived in Lodi and Pete's shop, not in the drop zone. I was in the rigging club. 
watching and learning and making like trucking clothes and like we made the first lightweight rig ever made for Dean because I knew a lot about climbing equipment and Pete knew about skydiving equipment and there was none of this like a combination of stuff what they do right now. I mean, all the new base jumping gear is something what we knew it's possible 20 years ago mm. and nobody wanted to make it and we made it for Dean, you know, and this Dean's rig, which he did the free base with it, probably to today is one of the lightest rigs ever made in the world. And there are two crazy riggers in the world who understand so much base jumping. This is Pete and this is Simon and Switzerland. Mm. And with both of these people, I spent shitloads of time because we even built the first parachute, the Outlaw, which Squirrel sells now. Me and Simon stitched every stitch on this parachute and went and tested it in Lauterbrunnen. Simon is a designer for paragliding wings. But he just cut it on a laser cutter and we went to a factory in Croatia and we built one That's and amazing. we jumped it. That's amazing. And same, same with the equipment we use, you know. So when you know how the gear works, you know how to take care of it. And when you have this focus, allows you to understand if you want to do something, if it's going to be fun or going to be like the next magic career. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. I mean, I'm all for innovation, but uh, the stones that you guys have to be able to do what you do and then start testing new equipment on top of it. I mean, holy shit. <laughs> next level. Next I mean, le for me, it was very difficult. You know, like uh, some years ago, I stopped jumping from airplane from 2012 to 2017. I maybe done like three or four jumps from airplane. Hmm. In the meantime, the big wingsuits appeared, and one day I got a big wingsuit, you know, but every day we were jumping in the front of the house in the Via Ferrata in Lauterbrunnen, doing like four or five jumps sometimes. And I just changed the wingsuits, and I jumped the big wingsuit out of a cliff and started doing it for years. And one day I was called to go to help some people to do some wingsuit stuff, and I had to jump a big wingsuit out of an airplane. I shitted myself. You talk about fear. This I had a fear because I didn't know what's going and when I jumped, man, I seen the ground and the sky so many times with these big wings without a airplane. I didn't know what's going on. I was like, wow, something is wrong. Then I put a small wingsuit and things worked out. I did what I had to do for two more jumps. And from there, I went back to bay jumping. And I jumped and I was like, wow, this really works. It flies. And I went back to the airplane and had a horrible time again. So it's been quite strange, right? And doesn't make any sense, but. For me, like somehow the big wingsuits were being possible to fly under control <laughs> away from cliffs, never from airplanes. Dude, that's fucking, that's absolute insanity. <laughs> that is so fucking cool. I'm just trying to picture, I mean, you've got a lot of things that you've done 180 degrees backwards from what I would have thought would have been the normal way to do things, but you've made it work so fucking well. I mean, dude, you've been at this a long time. Yeah, it has been a long time in this journey. I mean, what, what comes next? What's the next big thing? Is there something new on the horizon, or is it just new levels of the same? Um, I think I don't aim at anything crazy. You know, it's like maybe having a family will be a bigger challenge than all the things I've done to the moment. Probably scarier uh, than all of them, too. I mean, like, yeah, everything is scary, like, if you think, because you have expectations, and when you have expectations, you have disappointments. Sure. So, but thinking realistically, you know, putting all the stuff on the top of each other and the things I've seen and, like, the life I lived, like, there is not much more we can do, you know. 
always somebody who will jump from higher, from greater, or whatever we want to measure it uh, into the world of ego. Sure. If you do it for yourself, as long as it's a pleasure, it doesn't matter if it's a 100-meter base jump or like you fly for 10 minutes off the mountain with a wingsuit. Sure. Uh, well, that was one so of the big things with you, though. You never struck me as the type that was doing anything to feed your ego or impress anybody. It always seemed clear to me that you were doing it for yourself. Um, you know, you and Ammon, when we got to know you guys, when we were going through the course and you would tell us about some of your climbing stories, you weren't telling us because you were trying to brag. You were telling us because we kept asking you um which is a huge uh great um you know thing in your favor is that you were never bragging you were just telling because we wanted to know and it never seemed like you were doing anything to impress anybody else i mean we needed to impress some people like because we wanted to live this professional lifestyle but uh in the old days before the social media was like a lot easier because the magazines are chasing us to take pictures of us and put us in their covers sure and this is the things worked out uh, very easy in the old days. We did stuff, and people hear about the stuff we done like a month later. As well as the base jumps, you see, uh, I posted recently here. Start doing some YouTube channel where I posted some of my jumps. Right. They're done months ago. Uh, I don't post anything when I do it, and I don't encourage people to do it. And I uh, used to, I put actually the locations of the place where I jumped. Now I don't. Mm. Uh, because, uh, I mean, this is the coolest thing of the whole thing is the adventure. Sure. Is to see it, to be intrigued by it, but to go to find it and to take your own decision. Instead, somebody tells you, yeah, you go there, you do that, and it's 130 meters, you have no problem, jump it. Sure. Sure. Right? This is like intentionally forcing somebody to do something. And in base jumping, this is the most important thing is this is why I like base jumping is because to the time you do this hike, you understand where you are. Sure. You feel that you feel the environment where you are. You hike the way you're going to fly. And when you get to the top of the mountain, you're the person who takes the decision. You don't get forced to do it. Sure. Well, and pretty much a lot of us manage to force themselves even with counting to push this step forward. Even sometimes this can be fatal. Sure, sure. And for me, this is the thing what maybe have changed me for a long time, what Dean always was teaching me. He said, it doesn't look at, after other people because when we leave the edge, we are alone. Sure. And it's very important to be humble enough for yourself to uh, to take the decision if something looks good or not. Sure. And not because your body who is good as you if you can't measure yourselves, uh, did it, but yeah, I can do it probably too. Uh, base jumping is for me is not a sport actually compared to all the other things I done. I can consider climbing as a sport or like a competitive activity. Base jumping is not for me. This is a philosophy. Sure. This is a way to express yourself in a particular moment of time and having the skill to fly parachutes. You know, we're nothing special. You just have to do one step. This is what jumping is. Jumping is the easiest sport from all of it. And as you asked me, like in the beginning, sorry to changing the subject no, a little please. bit, skydiving for me was the most challenging thing I ever got involved into, like learning experience. But in the reality, in skydiving for half an hour, ground lesson and seven jumps, you're technically allowed to jump out from airplane alone. Mm. This technically takes 45 minutes, right? Sure. So a person can be jumping along from an airplane if he's relaxed. Right. 
But to learn to climb for 45 minutes for me would be difficult to teach you how to tie in and belay. Sure. Well, I so mean, most climbing always sp- seems so much more intense to me. And, and in the experiences that I've had, climbing were much more intimidating. And I had to work much harder at staying calm climbing than I ever did skydiving because skydiving is coming at you so fast um, that by the time you realize that there's a problem, you've dealt with it, it's over with, you're under your reserve if something went wrong. But with climbing, if something goes wrong, you know, assuming you're still on the wall, there's a whole lot of shit that has to happen. And uh, Kevin Love was the guy that taught me how to climb uh, out in Vegas. And he uh, had told me one thing that uh, made more sense than anything. We got up, I don't know, two or three pitches into a five pitch route. And uh, we were having a few issues. And his response was, well, shit, the only way down now is up. So let's go. And you're sitting there three pitches up or four pitches up going, oh, fuck, man, this isn't just going to be over in two or three minutes. This is going to be two or three hours of stay calm and get it done. And that's some pretty intense shit. Yeah, it is actually a point of view. You know, it's been intense, but maybe nowadays you may look differently of the things. Sure, sure. And uh, this has been in the past. And skydiving, actually, to get good at it takes a lot of effort afterwards. Sure. I'm talking about the basic because it's like a driving. Somebody teaches you how to drive a car, but takes a whole life to learn how to, like, properly drive a car. Sure. Uh, that's the whole thing. And uh, the basic in skydiving is very fast, but, like, going to free-flying, I never went to free-flying. You know, I had to focus into my stuff. Sure. Uh, I always do wingsuits and stuff like this, and I've always been intrigued by the free flying. You know, and Lodi, they're some of the most amazing free flyers around the world. And they had all these conventions, and I was friends with some of them, and I was quite impressed and dragged into it. But Dean always put me to the ground, and he said, Man, if you start free flying, that means you're a skydiver, you're not gonna climb anymore. <laughs> and uh, I mean, we quit climbing when we started base jumping, you know, right. this was a problem. Last was we had to hike every jump we do in Yosemite because there's no cable cars there. Right. <coughs> so at least we were fit, but uh, our climbing shape went way down for two years. We just lost like a probably a couple of grades of climbing. Sure. It was kind of a stretch. One day with Dean, we went rock climbing and like we could not, not climb a route we used to climb with not not on a rope but like a pretty fast. Sure. And we we some files and we're just like whoa man we've been base jumping too much now we have to start climbing again (laughs) (laughs) that's pretty funny well it's funny how sports can just kind of take over man you get that passion for something and and that's all you want to do for a while and you forget about other stuff that's for sure so uh, i mean oh please go ahead uh, no, no, I say it's a kind of a lazy uh, compared to climbing you know like climbing uh, as you say can take like a 10 hours to climb a very long route on El Cap or somewhere else and a base jump takes like one hour hiking to the top of the mountain and like a well, how you call it like a minute and a half of complete joy yeah and then you're at the uh, coffee shop <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so tell uh, tell me, how do people find out? Do you have a, an athletes page, places where they can go and see some of the stuff that you've been up to and, and see some of your history? Yeah, I mean, I use the Facebook. I have a profile there, like a personal one and an athlete one, Ivan Inov. And at YouTube, uh, I have a channel which is named Outback Adventures Bulgaria. 
Um, I have a little company here which I use for guiding and uh, take people uh, for paragliding flights from the top of the mountains. Awesome. Pretty much uh, hike and fly. So hike to some of the highest peaks here in the Balkans and like take good rides with a paraglider. And yeah, I've been working on my little business just to keep me busy with something here and to be able to share this passion with other people because it's like a super egoistic just to do it for yourself. Well, and I hear Bulgaria is just a stunning place. It's beautiful, yeah? Yeah, actually, it's a beautiful country. We have a little bit from everything, but it's little. Well, fair enough. Fair enough. But it's got to be from somewhere, <laughs> right? <laughs> no, no, it's a beautiful place. If you ever have a chance, we'll be... Uh, happy to have you here. Hell, hell yes, man. I would absolutely love to come. And the fact that I'm having a podcast with you and I can hear crickets in the background, that's a first. <laughs> I fucking love it, man. Yeah, we live in the wild here. Dude. I live on the top of the... <laughs> that's awesome. I've been in the city for ages, so hearing crickets chirping in the background is fucking wonderful. But, Evo, man, <laughs> I'll tell you what, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to sit down and talk with me. It's so fucking cool catching up with you after all these years. Yeah, it's been awesome for me as well, Dean, and it was a surprise. Oh. And very, very good surprise, you know. It's like uh, when you ask me, oh, can you do this podcast for me? I was like, ooh, that's oh. interesting what this guy is doing. And then I listened to your podcast, and it was quite interesting. So it's been so nice chatting with you, though. We never would have catch up. No, no, and that's the greatest thing about this damn thing is even if nobody else listened to this podcast, this is a great way for me to have excuses to talk to all these fucking ridiculously cool people that I've met throughout my entire career in the sport and get to reminisce and, and talk about the amazing stuff that you've been up to since then. So, like I said, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks, Dean. Evo, man. I love you, man. Take care. Much love, Dean. Bye-bye. Well, there you have it. Another episode of the Lunatic Fringe Podcast brought to you as always by, well, wait, not as always, actually. Brought to you now by Gyro. Formerly known as NZ Aerosports, you'll head to gyro.com for their next level line of canopies. By Pussfoot, the Extreme Sports Collective. Head over to pussfoot.com to check it out. By Summit Parachute Systems, Check out SummitParachuteSystems.com to talk to Jarrett Martin and the gang about kick-ass pilot rigs, rigging courses, and more. By FlyAway Indoor Skydiving. Go to FlyAwayTN.com and check out all the cutting-edge stuff to come. By Pure Spectrum CBD. Head to PureSpectrumCBD.com to check out their wide range of CBD products. And as for us, head to the LunaticFringePodcast.com to listen to any of the hundreds of episodes currently available. Hit the link for our YouTube channel, pick up your copy of the Lunatic Fringe book or The Accidental Stripper, and get a sneak peek at upcoming guests. Once again, thanks for listening, we'll see you next time.